Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in Psychedelic Salon 2.0. And I am pleased to begin today by thanking Robert L., Austin B., and E.J. H., all of whom have become my new supporters on Patreon. And while these new patrons, uh, well, I guess they weren't able to join us on Zoom last night, but we nonetheless had a good crowd. And among other things, we talked about Dennis McKenna, Joe Rogan, Michael Pollan, our favorite binge-watching shows, (laughs) some rude presenters at a recent psychedelic conference in Oregon, Burning Man, Lightning in a Bottle, and, of course, there was also a lot of talk about uh, psychedelics in the psychedelic community. I should point out that to participate in these weekly conversations on Zoom, as well as getting their names in the dedication to all of my next books and reading my new work as I go along, well, I've also added an RSS feed and have begun posting, uh, well, a few short Terrence McKenna sound bites that I've been saving as I edited his talks over the last 13 years. And all of that can be had for the princely sum of only $1 a month. So I hope to see more of our fellow Saloners joining us, uh, not just on Patreon, but joining in our conversations as well. And it's it's a true conversation. For example, uh, last night I also asked for and received some really good suggestions as to how I should go about preparing the Terrence McKenna lectures that we uh, as a group selected to, to be played late at night this year at Camp Soft Landing. Uh, at Burning Man for anyone who needs to relax a bit and gather their second wind before returning to the parties on the playa. So, late at night at Camp Soft Landing at the Palenque Norte tent, you'll be able to hear some psychedelic salon talks. And uh, just one announcement today, which is that in next week's podcast, I intend to play the next session of the McKenna workshop that we've been listening to. And even though it's all about his time wave idea... As you know, I've been skipping those parts of his workshops in some programs because they could also be found elsewhere on the net. But since this particular workshop isn't up there anywhere that I can find, well, I thought that uh, we should keep it intact. So if you've been wondering what I cut out when I didn't play a time wave session, well, now you have your chance to hear what you've been missing. And now here is Lex Pelger who will introduce to you our program for today. I'm Lex Pelger, and this is the Psychedelic Salon 2.0. Leah Friedman is an academic, she's a writer, and she's a community organizer. She co-founded the Boston Entheogenic Network, and she also hosts the podcast The Psychedologist. Her work looks at consciousness through the lens of social and environmental justice. She's also an old friend of mine from the New York City psychedelic community, and she's one of my favorite people to put on a stage. Today, she'll share about her recent trip to the Amazon and about the power and perils of ayahuasca. Hello, everybody. I'm happy to be here with Leah Friedman, the host of The Psychedologist. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Lex. Um, So before we get into your uh, big trip down south, can you tell me a little bit about your background and how you eventually came to an interest in psychedelics? Sure. Um, I 
first learned about psychedelics in school, um, looped in with all the other very dangerous drugs that degenerate people use. Um, so I had no interest in them at all until after I got my master's and I dated a guy who was into mysticism and he was reading a book by Graham Hancock and talking to me about taking high doses of mushrooms. Um, so that was when it first entered my radar and I was pretty frightened by it, um, partly because my mom had a scary mystical experience on a high dose of edible cannabis when she was in her 20s. Uh, so she had always talked to me about how frightening that was and she wanted to um, go to the hospital. She wanted to die. And then the police came and she was naked in the bed and there was this whole big trauma. And so I, you know, I, like many people thought that psychedelics just made crazy, horrible things happen or made dragons pop out of nowhere. <clears throat> um, but then after that guy and I decoupled, I started looking into it more. And my first trip was actually to set me up to go down and drink ayahuasca. I found a center. I was going to Costa Rica and I found a place that um, did ayahuasca there. So when someone found out I was going, she said, okay, I'm, I'm going to give you this. She gives me a little piece of tinfoil. She goes, there's one dose of LSD in there. And I think that you should take that before you drink ayahuasca because you have no idea what you're getting yourself into. <sighs> so on that day, I had realizations that were far surpassing anything I learned in school, anything I ever learned about myself. I studied psychology, undergrad and grad school. I've always been very interested in my mind and the way that I talk to others, the way that they hear me, how they think, our behaviors and um, larger social systems were always fascinating to me. And that day was just like a time warp. It's like, I don't know, I don't remember, was it The Secret World of Alex Mack? I think this like guy could put his hand on a book and just like read the whole book. Do you remember that? Yeah, I do. Yes, I do. <laughs> what was that? The Secret World of Alex Mack? Um, I uh, I remember the show. I there and there's just such a history in uh across worlds of uh causing demons to come forth who go and steal you books from around the world and magic spells to try to <laughs> learn by osmosis. And it's just, you know, going all the way back to King Solomon being the great magician uh, bibliomancer. Um, <laughs> so it makes sense to me. Yeah. Oh, exactly. Well, it was like that. Um, and that began my journey. I actually saw you up on stage at Symposia's conference in Amherst, um, the one of like a future beyond prohibition, was it? Yes. Ima imagine a post-prohibition. Yeah. And that was great. And that was the first time I saw some of my now friends and still idols um, speak uh, coming back from that first ayahuasca trip. Um, I didn't think that it could be a career or a, an area of such personal growth and interest for me. And, and it totally was. So I got started about four years ago. And then after doing a lot of reading and attending events, I started to write about it and talk about it and had more experiences. And I was seeking to address some issues in my past and my present of eating disorder, body dysmorphia, and um, also other unexplainable conflicts that I'd had in my life and psychedelics were giving me perspective on that. So that's kind of what it looked like. So how did that, that LSD experience go then? Well, I watched my houseplant grow and wither and die and sprout and grow new and wither and die. And I was thinking about the life cycle and how um, maybe so many people are in pain because we're separate from the natural cycles of nature and death and rebirth and um, the endings aren't a bad thing and that it's like from death that new life comes. Have you read Women Who Run With the Wolves, Lex? Oh, yes. Sure 
<laughs> so the life, death, life, right? Um, and following that, I just began, uh, it's actually where I started getting interested in cultivating the land. And that's what, that's what psychedelics have led me to now. It's funny that my first trip was about a plant and now I'm, all I want to do is work with the plants and I'm finding it very psychedelic to cultivate the land and learn about herbs and how herbs interact with us and to have relationships with plants rather than just using them. That was another part of the trip was like, I use something and then I throw it away and away isn't even in a way that it can come back into the cycle. It's like, where does our trash go? You know, it's certainly not being recycled back in, in any kind of ready state to be used again by the planet. Mm-hmm. And it, and it's a good point because it's, it's such a remarkable feature of ayahuasca, especially, but also the other psychedelics that uh, shamans talk about a lot is people drink the vine for the first time and they just come out of the experience with big green eyes. So the first time they really get the ecosystem nature of the planet and the importance of preserving it. And it's just such a, a regular occurrence from just even one experience with ayahuasca. It, it certainly lends to the perspective for me that psychedelics are defense mechanisms that the earth as an entire system uses to prevent destruction because mushrooms come up in areas of disturbed soil. You know, they like to grow in cow poop and, and cow poop is, is like, you know, this thing that's causing massive pollution around the world for us. Cause we're like, basically, um, I mean, I'm, everybody probably knows this, but, um, the beef industry is, by far the most responsible for climate change than any of the fossil fuels that we're burning in our cars, which are also super bad, but it's just the, the methane gas and, and, and everything that's polluted as a result of it. And, and mushrooms grow out of that. And ayahuasca is growing in the rainforest where um, the most biodiversity in the world exists and is being destroyed every single day to clear plots, to graze cattle and to grow monocrops of corn and soy. And so it's like, it's I, I think that the fight is like you can actually watch it happen almost between these two forces. And uh, I like to consider myself an ally to the psychedelics like they're not an ally to me. I'm an ally to them in this mission to wake the world up to the the harm um, humans are causing to the ecosystem. And is that how you came to um, to be starting your show as well to spread the, the news? I always wanted to have an outlet for my writing and my creative ideas. Um, and I had been little known fact, I've been a DJ since I was like 13. Um, DJ Snow White. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And uh, I did like kids parties and also did some weddings and bar mitzvahs and whatnot. Um, I love being on the microphone. So when somebody that I knew and, and we, we sort of had a trade going of <clears throat> helping each other out, He's a producer and he knows how to release stuff. So he said, I want to make this happen for you. Like if you record it, I'll do everything else. So the initial plan was for it to just be about consciousness, consciousness, positive radio is the tagline. And um, what's been great about that is that you can just anything is consciousness related if you take that vein to it. So what I just began by interviewing people about psychedelics. Now we're talking a lot about social justice and environmental justice and the human experience. And it's, you know, I'm focusing on mostly having female guests because there's, as you probably know, there's a lot more male representation on the radio than female or non-binary. Um, and I discovered that when I listened to a 
podcast hosted by a female and thought her voice was really annoying. And when what she was saying was great. I'm like, wow, she her voice annoys me so much. I'm like, huh, all the podcasts I listen to are hosted by men. Maybe that's why. So that's kind of my bent for now is, is on featuring more female and non-binary voices, queer people, people of color, marginalized um, individuals who want to talk about their experience because we don't get to hear that as much. Are there a couple of uh, interviews that would be good ones for them to check out? Well, they all have a description with them. Um, Some of my favorites, I did a six-day mushroom, intensive mushroom cultivation course at Fungi Academy in Guatemala. And that one is a super cool interview. That's number 15 um, because I interviewed one couple that kind of like got it started and, and well, they, they didn't get it started. They came in and like turned it into what it is now. And so we talk about <clears throat> starting um, like social cooperatives and uh, all the difficulties and then some, some cool mushroom facts. And then this other couple, we talked about the bigger picture of like climax forests and how fungi works in the soil and those and plenty of talk about psychedelics there as well. And then another shout out um, is my episode with Britta Love, number 10. I love um, Britta Love. <laughs> She's a great friend. You know her. She's amazing. I didn't realize you did, had done a show together. That sounds great. Yeah, yeah. We did a great episode. Um, and we talk about Iboga in that one and um, sex work and healing. And um, I actually interviewed a few of the women that went on the Cosmic Sister trip. I know that you wanted to talk about that a little. So that's episode 18 and it's three interviews with just like all the women on the trip were absolutely amazing. There were 23 of us, but those three, I got them on the show. And can uh, can you tell me more about Cosmic Sister and what they do and, and how you got involved? Yeah, I'm, Cosmic Sister is something that you, you really should visit the website. There's so much that this woman, Zoe Helena, does. Um, I don't even know where to begin. She's like, she's protecting the animals. She's protecting the plants. She's empowering women. She's uh, empowering the psychedelic movement and female voices in it and cannabis. And I'm just like, mindful living, ecofeminism, psychedelic feminism, advocacy work, just all this Um but what I was participating in is kind of this yearly trip that they do down to the Amazon. Um, Chris Killam, the medicine hunters, Zoe's husband, and he's traveled the world, gone to far reaching places to hunt medicine <clears throat> and try different things. So they safely take down a group of women um, from all different walks of life, some of whom have not had any travel experience. And, um, and there are grants that, um, if someone can't afford the trip, people can like receive a grant from her and from the funding that she, the fundraising she does all year to save up all this money. And I know this year she spent a bunch of her own money. I suspect she does that every year just because she wants to bring everyone. Um, because we had like travel delays and people had to buy new flights. It was like a whole New England nightmare, let me tell you. Um, but yeah, it's to bring people to the medicine for the first time. And, uh, and, and, I think I was one of like three people who had drank ayahuasca before. Some people had never taken psychedelics at all. There was, I think the oldest one of us was late sixties, I want to say. And, and the youngest was 22 and it's, it's advocacy to heal and to process together and to form bonds and to bring back the, um, the awareness of, you know, whatever comes through in the medicine space. Um, and so how did it go on the trip this year? I had a, a bunch of intentions to take a look at. And <laughs> as is true for the psychedelic experience, especially ayahuasca, you, you usually don't get 
any idea and anything that you thought you were asking for, it doesn't look like that at all. But in some way, especially when you've had some distance from it, it was exactly what you needed, exactly what you asked for. So as I've tried to address my eating issues, lifelong issues with dysmorphia about my body, I thought that it would circle around my relationship to food, obviously, or my relationship to my body. It just seemed so clear. I'd have some epiphany. You know, ayahuasca would like change my brain and make me love my body. And I would, I'd come out of the trip like, oh my God, like poof, cured. You ever thought that, that you, you would be just cured of something from a trip? Uh, no, no, but I don't have much faith in anything. So, um, <laughs> but I do, but I, which is funny because with all the anecdotal stories I've heard over the years, I hear things like that a lot, things that are more amazing than most people would believe. And, you know, you can't even share them because the amount of change from one psychedelic experience can be, you know, lifelong and, and important. Absolutely. Um, and I, I think those trips, sometimes afterward you're saying, this trip changed my life. But other times it's like, okay, well, that was, oh, that got a little weird. All right. And, and then it, you just keep coming back to it. So, I mean, you asked how the trip went. In, in total, the orchestration of the trip was amazing. The bonding and the work that people did was truly astounding. Um, and then I'll speak to how it went on my end because then that kind of ties back into the whole group. Um, we went to the Temple of the Way of Light. This is outside of Iquitos. Iquitos is like the ayahuasca capital of Peru. And before ayahuasca was the big industry, because it is the industry down there, uh, it was rubber tapping. So this, you know, it's, it's another irony that, um, that, this is the place where people are being healed and maybe the earth is, is like trying to heal itself from, from human activity. And it's the place is so destroyed. Um, very like it was as crazy as being in Ho Chi Minh city in Vietnam, like all the motorbikes, the pollution in the air, the um, trash in the streets and people salute uh, people rushing around um you know, just like no, no good vibes, no good vibes that anyone could feel. Very hectic, a lot of noise pollution and, uh, yeah, an, an industrialized city for sure. And it's right on the bank of, um, and like, the, oh, it's right on the mouth of a river, a confluence of two rivers and it's filled with trash and there's old, an old boat floating in it. That's just like falling apart that, and these expensive restaurants that serve ayahuasca, dieta food. It's very, very interesting. So, we traveled to the Temple of the Way of Light, which was by uh, first bus and then boat and then smaller boat and then walking for a half hour through the jungle. And there were porters to carry our bags. So you're really you're out off the grid um, quite a bit. There's no electricity there. You arrive, unpack and then basically get to work. And so the intentions that I had created and we shared them as a group, which was so amazing to hear what people were coming in to work on and then. Uh, as we would do the integration check-ins during the week, everyone's sharing the kind of progress that they're making. And it's like, wow. And you can see it. You can see it in them uh, or the progress they're not making and how that just kind of makes them want to shut down, how frustrating that can be. So I was I'm looking at my notes here. Um, I wanted to heal body dysmorphia. I wanted to, to see myself and others as perfection and just so not see them through this like Western lens of what flaws, you know, completely arbitrary. Um, I wanted to take a look at emotional eating and 
avoiding hard feelings by overworking. <clears throat> and then this one was cool. I have judgment and doubt about spiritual phenomena, uh, including ayahuasca. I hear people talk about um, seeing spirit or you know, just like the more what we'd call woo-woo things. And my brain's very judgmental to hearing those experiences of people and because I've never experienced them. So I wanted to like have some more openness and acceptance about that. Uh, and of course I wanted to experience it myself. If it's there for me to see, I would love to meet these spirits. I've been tripping for a while now. Are you guys going to come? <laughs> so I thought that the Shipibo shamans would be the key to that because when you take ayahuasca, um, there are different traditions that you can take it in. And you can definitely take it in Manhattan with a gringo shaman in someone's high rise. Like, and, you know, I don't know what tradition that's coming from. No tradition at all. I don't think they're probably just brewing a DMT containing leaf or plant with uh, an MAOI. So pe people who aren't familiar, ayahuasca is a combination of two things um, that makes the trip happen. But um, the Shipibo lineage is, has carried this medicine for a long time, and they have these things, these songs called Ikaros. And the Ikaro is realized by the shaman when, or the um, maestra or maestro, often when they do a dieta, which is like a, um, a walkabout, an isolation. They go into nature, they're out of contact, they don't touch anyone, they don't talk. They sit with the plant, <clears throat> either drinking an infusion of the plant or eating it in some way uh, or just sitting with it and, and having a very, very limited diet. And this could be for one day, one week, five months, two years. And then eventually the plant gives them a song and it's the sound waves that make it possible for that maestro, for that um, shaman, curandero, whatever you want to call it, for them to call on that plant spirits help to help heal the person so that basically they're making allies with these plants by being with them, studying them and, and relating. So I thought that these Icaros would be the, the missing link because I had drank ayahuasca a number of times in different traditions, including Santo Daime and Colombian tradition. And I never, um, I never had this like spirit experience. So I was going in with those intentions and a few more the judgment and doubt about spiritual phenomena relates to this overarching thing I've been trying to do for a few years, um, which is to let go of my overcognitive, reductionistic, uh, kind of like materialistic lens on reality and see beyond the possibilities that are that are right in front of me that my that my mind has been trained to see, especially as a clinical psychologist. I kind of like pathologize things before I'm really curious as to what else is going on. You know what I mean? And so did it, how did it feel um, with going in with those intentions? Did it, um, did it feel like it, it went in that direction or did it, uh, you get a pretty unexpected result? I got – well, if you had said, what are you most afraid of, I would have said, I'm, I'm not afraid. Give it to me. Give me whatever you got. And because often when we think of scary psychedelic, when I think of scary psychedelic experiences, it's like being eaten by snakes and like, you know, falling off a cliff or um, just like your worst fear being in your face. And the, the very worst thing happened to me, which was I felt like this was all a total sham. And I looked around at the these lovely people singing to us. And I'm like, this is no different than paying to go to the circus and look at the performance that these animals are doing. Like, I had such incredible, like, disgust for all of us 
going into this indigenous area and basically like saying like, oh yeah, like I'll pay the big bucks for you to sing this like ancient song to me. Oh, you learned it from a plant? Like whatever. Sure. Um, like heal me, please. Like I thought it was so disrespectful. And then I'm like thinking, oh, it was, <laughs> it was very myopic. I'm like, these people don't, you know, they have these songs that come to them, but it's just like, there's no spirit. There's no spirit in anything in the world. We're all just empty. And they're singing these songs because we keep coming and paying to hear these songs and no one's connected to anything. And everyone takes a drug and sits and has a trip and feels really special and feels like their trauma and their life was really important. Um, and the, that's what heals is, is just all of that. It was, it, it was so bad. I, I was like, if anyone could see into my thoughts right now, they would think I'm a terrible person. And I care, I care a lot about indigenous rights. And I think that that was like coming up against my guilt of like, is it okay for me to be here and to drink this medicine? And do I do enough at home to, to like live out my values about being in the cycle of nature? It was, it was the worst. <laughs> <laughs> Would be tough, especially because you're not wrong. I mean, that stuff is all true to a certain extent. It doesn't, doesn't invalidate all of the healing that comes out of it, but there is a, you know, a dark and consumeristic side that, that's growing. And to have that be a main part of the experience, that would, um, that would be something. It was kind of a purge in a way. The, the purge can come in so many forms. You're, you're yawning, you're burping, you're farting. Never trust a fart. Ayahuasca, never trust a fart. That's what they told us. Um, just better to go to the toilet. <laughs> and then there, of course there's like purging through vomiting out the mouth or like out number two. And for me, I think it was a big mental purge, a big purge of negativity for me to think the very worst thoughts. And then, you know, you, you purge so that you're clean so that there's space for the healing to come through. That's the idea. And, uh, it took me a while to see it that way. Um, cause I just came out of the ceremony in the morning, like, ugh. I don't even want to look at anybody. Um, and so what I ultimately had to face, and that was just the first ceremony. There, there are supposed to be five in a nine-day retreat, but we had weather delays for our whole party to arrive, so we only did four. Um, but what I realized by the end is that I have to grieve. I have to go through this whole process of sadness over not having my own belief system and wanting wanting there to be something that I have an idea about rather than validating and accepting the lens through which I see the world. And as we came into the final integration circle, this is how it kind of comes around, um, hearing these the lengths of these experiences that people had and someone watched their whole life, they watched their whole life before their eyes and they saw all these repressed memories and they were, they were this calm, enlightened agent observing what had gone on. And, and not only did they see their past, but they saw their future. And it, and I actually caught up with this person recently and it's still a huge thing that they're processing. It wasn't just like, yeah, how do you just come back from that and be the same? You're never the same. So just like hearing the, hearing the variety of experiences that were had, um, there was no way that I could, uh, put them down in my mind. They were, they were so amazing and so, so real. I felt like I was there with them. And ultimately I, it showed to me that 
as there is value in any other sort of experience and awareness, the awareness of auras and all these things that I haven't seen, there's as much to value in what I do see. And my visions in these situations are always plants and aliens. (laughs) That's what I see, plants and aliens. And I... I see through the consciousness of a plant. And when I tell some people that they don't know how to understand it. And maybe some people listening um, can't even fathom what that looks like, but it's quite, it's quite simple actually. Like the way that nutrients move up and down the stalk of a plant and the way that the roots draw up, um, you know, moisture and, and more food from the soil and the way that the sun is like, you know, that's just what you want to look at. I've, I've experienced feeling all those things through not my five human senses, but through other senses that I didn't know I had. And I've, I've felt that. So that's, that is like my teacher. I don't get to decide what the lesson is. I just have to show up and I've shown, I have shown up for many psychedelic trips being like, yeah, I'm open. I'm open. Give me whatever. And then that's, that's actually not the case. I'm like, give me whatever. I have this idea about what that'll be. And so how did you feel at the end of all of those days and you were done and, and knew you were heading back? Oh, there's always the fear of going back. And I was afraid of Iquitos being overwhelming because it's so loud the trips themselves, the um, ceremonies, I took notes. I always take notes during ayahuasca because I just don't have, like, my ability to write doesn't get impaired, and I find I can't really remember anything after, which is okay. It's okay that, you know, you don't have to remember everything, but I like to take notes. My The ceremonies were okay. Um, the content coming through was hard to understand in a lot of times, but I had these dreams that were profound. And so leaving the leaving the site, um, I continued having dreams with some very obvious messages of like me working out childhood stuff, childhood feelings about being chased and not being able to get away or trying to get something to happen and not being able to actualize it and that frustration. So as these various dreams came to me, it was kind of eased my way back into modern society. Um, and then of course being with the women was really great. I had a moment, um, in Lima before going home where I, I felt like I felt suicidal. I I, know like I've never had plans or any thoughts like that, but I have had moments of feeling like, um, couldn't I just die right now and not feel this anymore? And so as I started to feel that, I'm like, okay, I'm going to smoke some Mapacho. Mapacho is the sacred tobacco that the Shipibo people use. It's a jungle tobacco. It's wild. It has 16 times the nicotine content of, what we would, you know, commercial tobacco here. And uh, you don't really inhale it into the lungs. You just sort of breathe it into the mouth and then you let it out to let out your prayers. It's like a kind of like a smudge or a blessing. And so I, you know, I've never been a smoker. I've always had like a ceremonial relationship to tobacco. It really just came into my life when I found psychedelics. Um, so I went outside with the mapacho and I, I prayed with mapacho. I just let the smoke kind of wash away what was jarring me from letting negative things come and flow through. It's like everything was stuck in me. And (laughs) we were in the middle of the city, but there was this like potted plant and it was so nice. And I sat under the potted plant and basically like cuddled it, like not physically, but like cuddled up to it and smoked this mapacho. And um, the, the, what the Shipibo say about mapacho is it's like, I, I believe it's the Shipibo that say this, this was definitely talked about at the retreat. So, 
um, in some lineage that, that regards tobacco in a sacred way, the spirit of tobacco is like the gateway or like the ambassador to letting us know other plants. And they definitely feel that way about ayahuasca, that it's like the ayahuasca needs the mapacho around to like bridge the gap. And, and it like is like a connector. So it connected me back to myself and um, I've used it. I've used mapacho ceremonially a few more times since getting home. That's re- been really beautiful. You, you want to bring these ally experiences back with you so that um, it's not so weird to, uh, you know, it, it becomes normal to pee outside and to, um, <laughs> you know, to like brush your teeth with your water bottle. And then when, when you start going back to the old things, it's kind of like leaving rehab and going right back to where you were before. It's like you're quite susceptible to falling back into that conditioning. So having those little things was a great aid to me. Yeah, the reintegration is such a, uh, a key and hard part of it. Um, so where did you, uh, how did you set yourself up, uh, for when you came home and what were the plans, uh, back here in the States? Uh, well, I was getting ready to move to this farm that I'm now living on happy acres farm in Sherman, Connecticut. And I, um, I had a few things in place. Um, well, I had to speak at a conference as soon as I got back and, that was good because my talk was called um, what the psychedelic movement can learn from permaculture, <laughs> which I would love to show you sometime, Lex. Well, that sounds cool. <laughs> yeah. The, the principles of permaculture basically govern the way that we would look at working the land. Um, and it's not as, as capital. It's not as like the most we can get out of it, but rather how we can set up systems that, sustain themselves and that even regenerate what's been lost. So replenishing nutrients in the soil, cleaning the water and, and things that will go on beyond human intervention that that they don't need to be kept up with like agriculture. So I had like creating that was a good focus for my mind. And then I came to the farm. Um, and let's see, I want to mention something about food. So you know, per usual, I didn't have any grand uh, enlightenments about my, you know, my sexy body or, you know, to like, just, I didn't have a revolution in looking at food as sacred anymore. I still looked at it as something that relieves my tension. Um, And yet I started setting stronger boundaries with other people because I realized that when I felt violated, even even just depleted by someone else wanting more from me than, than what I could easily give. Um, I would just give it all up. I'd have nothing left and I would replenish myself by eating lots of food. So I started cultivating more respect and space for myself and, and like where I would give out 110% before giving out even less than I thought I should like giving out 50 or 60% and, and just letting letting that be all that I could give. And it's nice when you can give what you don't expect anything back from. I think that these are, these are things I've realized since coming to this farm and working on the land here, which is a really great integration tool, by the way, is like gardening, weeding, picking up heavy things, taking care of animals, whatever is accessible to you, getting your hands dirty. Um, I've learned that there's always give and take and you can't give with the expectation that something's going to come back to you. And you certainly can't give and then take because you've given. So shifting into a mindset of what I can freely give and then, 
and then receiving what's being given to me and honoring my food in that way, um, not using it like I discovered in my LSD trip, right? Like that, I, that we use everything, but rather accepting what's being given to us and what's here to sustain me so I can do my important work. That's been, it's been a good part of the integration. I did a meditation here on the land for four days, um, three nights. I went into the sacred grove, which is out of sight of the house, the main house. And amongst these amazing trees, I saw all kinds of wildlife during it. And I meditated and I allowed myself to read and journal and do yoga and explore. And I found all these cool wild plants around that were so supportive, like wild um, stinging nettle is extremely nutritious, more so than spinach. It makes a great tea. You can use it like a green. Um, and you have to be careful when you pick it because it has histamines in these little spiky hairs. So if you graze your hand, it will sting you. And it'll, on my skin, at least, it leaves a hive for like three hours that hurts. So just like this plant teaching me about learning how the plant wants to be picked or, you know, um, taking things with respect and with attention. That's been a huge part of my integration. It's still going on. And so what are you uh, seeing for the future um, with, your, with your projects? And what are you most excited about coming up? The psychedelic community is in a phase of uh, grappling with the same issues that non-psychedelic people and just like regular communities deal with sexual harassment and assault and identity politics and racism and uh, classism and privilege, etc. and white fragility. So I... I guess that's probably why I'm not excited is just because I see so much work ahead of us. And yet I'm eager to be a voice in that work because I care about this movement. I care about people having access to healing and to safe exploration of their mind, um, to, uh, our, our freedoms, freedoms, sovereignty over our consciousness. And so I'm, I'm looking forward to whatever is going to come my way as to how I can be an ally to um, to marginalized voices and <sighs> to all the people that email me like daily now. I think it's the Michael Pollan tour. I'm getting all these emails because I'm on the MAPS integration website um, asking me all these questions. So I'm looking forward to supporting that transition. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm like, I'm on the farm till December working the CSA that's community shared agriculture, grow a bunch of vegetables and we share it with the community. People like pay a portion and um, going to a cool kind of psychedelic wedding in the summer. Yeah, that's, that's all I got. That's great. Um, oh, 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 in the Detroit, sorry, the Detroit Psychedelic Conference hosted by Kalindi E. Yee. Would you like to explain who he is? Oh, man, he's the best. <laughs> uh, he's one of the favorite people I've ever had on stage. Whenever I can get him on our stage, I always do. Um, he uh, he believes in the power of mushrooms at much higher levels than most people are willing to talk about. He's a, he's a student of martial arts um, going a long time back, and he sounds like a big Baptist preacher. He just, his delivery is amazing. Um, and he talks about how you kind of have to sneak up on taking 30 grams of mushrooms. He wakes up and he's like, maybe today will be the day. And he almost takes them, but then doesn't and backs off. He's like, oh, maybe tomorrow. But he says that for that crouching tiger, hidden dragon aspect of martial arts, he's like, it does exist. And, but it's more at the 25 grams of mushroom uh, kind of level. And uh, he's... 
believes and sees evidence for a large uh, psychedelic influence on a lot of the beginnings of these uh, martial arts around the world, that they were using various head twisters wherever they were to help them continue to enhance their mind, just like uh, meditators, very experienced meditators, when acid hit the scene, they found out that uh, this could accelerate the the rate of their progress in meditation, just a little bit of experimenting with LSD, and he's seen the same thing with martial arts. Where the idea that it might help you as you're getting started, then after a while you might not need it anymore, but it's a, a helpful ingredient in your practice, whether that be mind training or body training. So Kalindi E is just a great speaker. Yeah, he, he also thinks that mushrooms influenced architecture. I don't know if you've ever heard about that. Oh, yeah, not from him, but yeah, it's uh an old idea. Um especially of the the uh like the when you look at a lot of African architecture and how there is um sacred geometry in how the stuff is laid out, the various villages and things like that. Um so the the last question I'll ask before I let you go is uh more of a fun one. So if we could get you uh, a big grant to do whatever you wanted for a year or two or perhaps start a foundation, what kind of work would be most important to you or what would you see growing with that seed money? Oh, great. Well, my Venmo is lfriedman.psy. <laughs> and uh, here's what I would do. I would, I already know, I've held this idea dear for a long time. First, I would get land in an area where there's a threat of, um, of, pipelines or power plants and there's just like some activity going on to resist that so i would buy up land in that area and on that land i would use sustainable and regenerative cultivation methods permaculture etc to build what would become a school and it would be a very alternative school for uh, folks on the autism spectrum and people with developmental disabilities quote-unquote disabilities and um, wh what we would be doing is basically Students who were disenfranchised with the mental health field, like such as myself long ago, and I didn't really know that there were other options, they would come and intern, and together there would be this communal situation of um, working the land, regenerating regenerating natural systems with um, micro-remediation that's using fungi to clean soil, clean water, and, and also fungi to supply this amazing medicine and and protein source for us and um, and using healing herbs and delicious vegetables and and some animals. It would just be like a complete system. And so it would be a place for people to come and learn, people who had been failed by uh, the systems that we have in place for, for humans to thrive. And then <laughs> after all that has gone on for a long time and I can pass it on to somebody else, this is, you know, this grant that I got for a couple years, right? I just ran with the momentum of it and I'm going strong and I'm like 50 years old because I've worked in academia for a few years now. I've been an adjunct psychology professor. I would start my own East Coast school that would be like CIIS in California, Institute of Integral Studies, where the whole school would be about the study of visionary experiences. So we'd have like a neuro psychology track where people would be neuroimaging, you know, folks on LSD or whatever. And we'd have like a history major where you could study the history of entheogens and altered consciousness experiences. And we'd have psychology, of course, and we'd have like nursing. And so it would just be an entire uh, university of psychedelic studies. And the professors would all be 
my friends like you, Lex, and all the other people that I know who we are like working on the ground right now. We're going to accrue all these experiences and then we're all going to teach these courses and it's going to be accredited because the world's going to recognize that psychedelics have always played a role in the evolution of humanity and we're going to finally acknowledge and validate that it's an important role and we need to learn more about it. Leah, that is one of the best answers I've heard yet. I uh, <laughs> I hope to see it happen, and I hope to see you on the stage with Michael Pollan uh, <laughs> at some point in the near future. Thank you, Lex. I hope you'll come teach at my school. What, what class do you want to teach? Absolutely. Um, Sh- a class the, on Shulgin, maybe. No, the, go ahead. Tell me. The, the neurochemical history of drugs is the first thing that comes to mind. Okay. All yeah. Right, you're in. It's all guesses. Um, yeah. It's a, a series of missteps would be the uh, subtitle. Of the class. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, Leah, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us and for all the, the work you do out there. And uh, yeah, best of luck uh, there on the farm and, and heading to Detroit. Thank you, Lex. It was a pleasure.